Hi, I'm Taryn Winterbrill, host of Bestseller TV on C-Suite Radio. On this show, I sit down with leading business authors to find out what makes their books stand out from the crowd. With thousands of new business books and titles being published each year, we try to make it just a little bit easier for you to decide which ones are worth the read. Thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the C-Suite Radio Network, turning the volume up on business. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Bestseller TV. I'm Taryn Winterbrill. We're here with Danielle DiMartino Booth. She's the author of Fed Up, an insider's take on why the Federal Reserve is bad for America. Great to have you with us. Thank you for having me today. Love the title, first off. <laughs> we were just talking behind the scenes that it's amazing you were able to get that title. It's, it's a study in subtlety, isn't it? <laughs> it, it really is. Um, let's get right into it. Before we get into why you feel the Federal Reserve is bad for America, tell us how you're an insider. How is this an, an insider's take? Are you the insider? I, I was the insider. I was okay. at the Fed uh, for nearly nine years. Uh, but more importantly, uh, if you go further back into my background just a little bit, I was also an insider on Wall Street. So I took a much different perspective into the Federal Reserve, that of somebody who saw the world through the prism of the financial markets. Okay. Uh, and then I ended up being there prior to the financial crisis, kind of as the housing bubble was erupting and the great financial crisis was descending upon the economy and the country and the global uh, economy for that matter. So I was able to really have a bird's eye view on the carnage of the financial crisis from ground zero. The front lines. From the Federal Reserve on the front lines, absolutely. And tell us in what capacity did you work at the Federal Reserve? I started out uh, as an analyst and I ended up becoming an advisor to Richard Fisher on monetary policy. And before he would go off to Washington, I would brief him on every matter uh, that, that seemed to be of concern with the financial markets, as opposed to just economic data flow, GDP growth, inflation, mm -hmm. et cetera. I really briefed him on what was happening in commercial real estate, what was happening in the corporate bond market, which affects a lot of your readers, obviously. Sure. Every aspect of the financial markets that you could possibly name was my responsibility. And Danielle, you know, looking back at the 2008 financial crisis, bring us back. Did you see it coming? You know, I did, and that's, I think, the reason that I came onto Richard Fisher's radar screen in the first place was that before I joined the Fed, um, I, I was predicting that the housing bubble would not just present itself, if you will, but that it would present systemic risk as well. It would become a threat to the entire global financial system, and there weren't very many people saying that right. in 2005 and 2006, but I was. And that really, you know, I think a lot of people at the Fed, including um, Richard Fisher himself weren't convinced that what was happening in the subprime housing market was going to become this mammoth issue uh, to face down for central bankers all around the world. Uh, but they brought me on, they brought me into the Fed just in case, just in case I was right. And they said, thanks, but no thanks? <laughs> uh, no, 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 no. Uh, there was definitely a point of validation after I came into the Fed, but it wasn't very, uh, it wasn't really a cause for celebration because you're right. not celebrating millions of people beginning to lose their homes right. and the economy descending in the worst recession since the Great Depression. Right, but how come no one took the threat more seriously? Well, it had been since the 1930s, since the Great Depression, that we had seen the phenomena of nationwide price declines. Uh, residential real estate was always kind of a local phenomena 
And yet here we were, despite the fact that Alan Greenspan and subsequently Ben Bernanke assured the American public that this could never happen on a nationwide scale, and yet it did. So let's talk a little bit about the book specifically. Um, why now? Why write this book now? Has this been a labor of love? Has this been many years in the making? It has. Uh, it's certainly been uh, a reason to pull myself away from my, my family and my young children. But by the same token, um, I felt that I had a responsibility to them and to every American to tell this story in an unbiased fashion with absolutely no agenda. I don't have a legacy to uphold, um, but I do have a true story to share with every single American about how the Federal Reserve directly impacts every decision they make in their financial life whether it's taking on a mortgage or buying a car or what they're going to put their 401k money into. The Federal Reserve has a hand in everything Americans do. And I don't think people have connected the dots the way that I've been able to, coming in as an outsider, coming in with my knowledge and experience on Wall Street, and then coming into the inner sanctum sanctorum of this very mysterious institution. Mysterious, indeed. So that's what this book does? That's the roadmap? It does. Of this it book? connects the dots. It okay. connect, but it connects the dots in layman's terms. It connects the dots for CEOs. It connects the dots for your grandmother. And it connects the dots for millennials and the generation behind them who don't quite understand the concept of compound interest, if you will, because their entire lifetimes have been spent where you couldn't go park your money in a savings account and actually earn a return on it. Mm -hmm. But we've been in this unusual environment artificially created by the Federal Reserve for much, much too long. And I think the time has come right. for somebody to begin questioning this, this ingrained orthodoxy because the, the time is upon us for change. Right. Well, it, it certainly is a daunting topic. And I like that you said that this is for everyone. You know, it should be, it, we should say that this isn't for financial experts, people in the trenches. Not at this all. This is for They'll understand the everyday it. American. They'll understand the book more quickly than others will. And there was a lot of translating that went on. And mm -hmm. there were probably 100 pages of endnotes that went into documenting this as well. But this story is told critically with my words, but also with the words of the people running the Fed in their own words. OK. And you mentioned before we started the interview, this is the first time anyone's written a book like this in about 30 years? This Did I get is, that right? This is really the first book of its kind um, since Secrets of the Temple that was written uh, about 30 years ago that is not, to use the right word, deferential. If you look at Timothy Geithner and Stress Test, if you look at Ben Bernanke and The Courage to Act, these go towards Winston Churchill's way of making sure history treats you correctly, and that's to write the history. Um, and they're very self-congratulatory books, and they're written with that aim. This has none of that. This simply is a way to bring the average American inside of the Fed. Okay, and this took you about two years to write? Mm -hmm. Okay, what would you say has been the biggest challenge for you in this whole process? You don't say what I've said in the book without making sure, to use a cliche, you cross your T's and dot your I's. So making sure that, that the fact-checking with this book was the most critical, and that was a little tricky at times because the actual transcripts of Fed meetings are released with a five-year lag. So it's good that we're in 2017 because we at least have right. the actual words of Fed officials now and the for the crisis era on the record and mm -hmm. able to be quoted. That is important. I mean, maybe you probably couldn't write the book to this extent five years ago. It would have been a little bit more conjecture 
-hmm. and there would have been more attorneys to get through to get the book out the door. But importantly, again, I didn't want to tell this through just my words and Mm -hmm. just my experience. It's a hybrid, if you will, because I I need for the reader to be able to see some of the decisions and some of the way Fed officials were thinking or, if you will, disregarding the needs of the average American so, when they plowed through with these decisions. Right. So let's let's get into it. Uh, why is the Federal Reserve bad for America? When you say that, are you saying get rid of it or it needs to be revamped? Upended is the word that I used. Mm-hmm. Use a different term, re-engineered, reinvented. Mm-hmm. We're not a banana republic and we exist against the backdrop of, of a global interconnected financial system and that is why we saw the damage that was caused by the financial crisis. So to say that the United States can can just march off into the sunset with no central bank, I think is, is highly unrealistic, but I think it needs to be taken down to the studs and completely right. rebuilt from the inside out. Oh, why? Let's get into it. What are the problems? What are the mistakes? What, well, are, the, what are the things that need to be fixed? The, and this is something that, that the great economist, and those, I, don't, I don't put those words together all the time, Milton Friedman observed in 1993, and that was that most of the world's economists were either employed at the Fed or contracted with the Fed or beholden to the Fed. Well, when you end up with over a thousand PhDs inside one institution, hmm. you are laying the groundwork for what we call groupthink. And the ability to dissent within the Fed is almost non-existent. And I believe that that is what caused policymakers to do things like take interest rates to zero and leave them there for as long as they have with the hopes that what their models told them could be accomplished in terms of reigniting economic growth would result how, they, how their models suggested that they would. Mm-hmm. But again, we are how many years into a recovery and we really haven't been able to break past a 2% growth rate? Mm. Clearly something's gone wrong. The way that they're making policy is not working. And again, policy is driven by what? Why, why this lack of dissent? Because they're all sort of, is, it, is it fear of losing your job? Is it, what, you know, what's, it's, what's the, it's, it's interesting. the crux of it? The, the New York Fed, which obviously is kind of ground zero, if you will, for, for regulating some of the largest banks in the world here in New York, um, they brought in an outside observer, uh, observer and task force after the crisis to say, how is it that all of these bank examiners in supervision and regulation, how is it that all of them could have missed? How did they get it? Then they all get it wrong. How did they all get it? I mean, this is this is this is impossible. Is there something broken in the culture? Right. And the determination was that the ability to raise your hand and say something is wrong with this picture, it, it wasn't allowed. Interesting. And that was the microcosm of the New York Fed, but. It was exactly the same experience that I that I experienced at the Dallas Fed. I mean, if you take something as simple as the idea of inflation or the rate at which prices grow, if you were to tell the average baby boomer that inflation was a figment of their collective imagination, that prices weren't rising too quickly, that the cost of living wasn't wasn't accelerating, they would consider themselves to have been insulted. And yet in the aftermath of the financial crisis, when it was pretty apparent that the Fed's way of measuring inflation had failed, they recognized it, but yet they didn't go back and come up with a new way of measuring it. Okay. Because it didn't fit with their ideology. And it becomes very dangerous when you try and force the data and force your models into a preconceived notion that you have. What do we need to do? The book goes into many, many ways that we can that we can fix what's happened. Um, when you consider that the Fed was conceived in 1913, 
anything west of the Mississippi was kind of the wild, wild west. Mm -hmm. Well, now you look and California is by large the largest economy in the country. Texas is the second largest economy in our country. And New York is the third largest economy in our country. And yet we have a Minneapolis Fed, a Cleveland Fed, a St. Louis Fed. We have, we have Feds and their fiefdoms, and it, trust me, they, they cost a lot of money to run each of them. But the Fed no longer resembles the country over 100 years ago. Right. So I think that those lines need to be redrawn. Updated. I, they do. Federal Reserve District Presidents are not given permanent votes on the committee, and yet they represent the bulk of the economy. So I think that they should be given permanent votes as well. And I think that some of the redundant Federal Reserve districts that have their own fiefdoms and you've got the monetary fed and the globalization fed. A lot I think, of cooks in the kitchen, it sounds like, Danielle. I think that some of them could safely go away. And you could take the resources you save and hire people who can actually read the most complicated bank balance sheet that you could throw at them so that this isn't repeated. So Danielle, in terms of these mistakes that the Fed has made, in your mm -hmm. opinion, tell us a little bit about how those mistakes have affected the average American versus the C-suite sure. corporate America. The thing is they're actually very closely related, if you will. The Fed has what's called a dual mandate. And without getting too deep into the weeds, that means that they need to minimize inflation and maximize employment. Well, the two naturally conflict with one another, which means that if you, if you succeed on one count, you fail on the other. So it has been the Fed's intent. Who says, though? Me. Oh, OK. In and your opinion. The, and okay. the evidence. Okay. And the trajectory like, is there of empirical the, evidence oh, of this? Or is this just well, it, one of these rhetorical no, 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 statements? No, no, no. The greatest evidence is the, the amount of people who have dropped out of the labor force over the past 10 years and not come back. OK. And I think that the Fed is using a very blunt tool of interest rates to try and incentivize right. people in the C-suite mm -hmm. to borrow and expand their companies. Mm -hmm. But if you're a CEO or a CFO, and you know that the Federal Reserve is artificially holding interest rates at too low of a level, well, then you're going to wait to see what the environment is like after the Fed gets out of the way. And, and, and you can actually see over the horizon a normal operating environment. You're not going to plunk a whole bunch of money down in, into new planner equipment. What you will do, though, is buy back your shares. So rather than expand the company, a huge backfire of Fed policy has been that CEOs and CFOs have rightly made the decision to buy back their shares and actually shrink their companies and to buy other companies and shrink effectively the, the number of publicly traded companies in this country, which has been a tremendous phenomenon over the past decade or so. If, if, you, if you look at a very simple statistic, since 2005, for every employee that has been hired in America, mm -hmm. $300,000, over $300,000 has been spent on share buybacks. No kidding. Well, that doesn't produce any lasting economic effect. Mm. And it also helps explain why our economy has become so non-productive. All you're doing is monkeying with your balance sheet. But you're doing it because the debt's so cheap, you, you would actually be doing your shareholders a disservice to not be taking advantage of the low interest rate environment. And that's what CEOs and CFOs have rightly done. But it has harmed the average American right. who's been unable to rejoin the workforce and would want a job if they could have it, as well as people leaving the workforce. Again, it's great to be a borrower when interest rates are at the what we call the zero bound at, at zero interest rates. But it, you know, it's really tough to be grandma because you don't want to have to go out and buy junk bonds. You want to march down to your bank and get a, a jumbo CD but you can't do that and retire. 
So right. you're forced to put your money in the stock market. You're forced to put your money in inappropriate investments that, by the way, have blown up the baby boomer generation not once but twice, with the implosion of the NASDAQ bubble and then mm -hmm. the downfall in the markets in 07, 08. I think that they're being set up for this a third time. But again, they've got no choice if they want to live off of their fixed incomes. Do you feel that Wall Street, nobody learned anything in the government? No one learned anything from the financial crisis? Well, I, I think, think it just came and went. And now we're back to business as usual. I don't think there were enough lessons that were learned. Right. Um, economists have stuck to their guns, and, and they have cleaved onto this notion that there's a wealth effect, and that if they can somehow, some way, encourage asset prices to rise, and of course, we've got record prices in the bond market, record prices in commercial real estate, record prices in, in the stock market, that it will somehow trickle down and result in more hiring. Well, that hasn't happened. Now, Wall Street wants to take that all the way to the bank. They've been major beneficiaries of it. But if you look at, at this just past election, you will also find that Fed policy has directly widened the inequality gap in mm. this country and angered so many people because there have been those who have benefited and those who have suffered at the hand of Fed policy. And people are angry about it. So you mentioned the election, which is what I wanted to bring up. What are your thoughts on this administration in terms of how policies will change? Will they change? Will they remain the same? Oh, I think we've seen that they're going to change. Mm -hmm. um, and it's really difficult to say what this administration is going to do. However, it's a statement of historic fact that one of Obama's legacies is that never in the history of the Federal Reserve, it's over 100 years, has anybody had two open vacancies on the Federal Reserve Board for as long as he had, no simply because he couldn't get a nominee through the confirmation process. Right. So Trump has, you know, as soon as he names his Supreme Court nominee and takes care of that task number one, he has an immediate opportunity to name two nominees to the Federal Reserve Board who will introduce what we spoke of earlier that is non-existent at the Fed. They will reintroduce the idea of dissent. Right. And they could make policy making and decision making, they could upend it Wow. overnight just by using a word that is a four-letter word inside the Fed right now. No. So, Danielle, are you hopeful then? Sounds like you're hopeful. Or are you scared? <laughs> Which one is um, it? I am cautiously optimistic. <laughs> Good answer. Um, I, I don't know that, uh, that, that President Trump is necessarily going to succeed in having his own party back him. And one of the, I mean, the siren song of low interest rates from the perspective of a president is that it's really hard to pass expensive legislation if the borrowing costs of the country are going up. So I think he will have an ethical conundrum that he's going to have to look hard in the mirror and decide whether or not he wants to do something for the long-term health of the economy. Right. Or he wants to make sure that in his first two years he accomplishes his infrastructure spending, his tax cuts. These things cost money. It'll be interesting because he ran on being a businessman. He did. He's not a politician. And he did say himself so this that, is his that the, Fed has, the Fed has blown bubbles and right. that they, they were political in their leanings. And regardless of what you think, if he's going to put his money where his mouth is, he is going to allow dissent to reenter the Fed. Right. I mean, he's, he's held up his bargain in terms of immigration so far. We're only a few days into the administration. Right. But uh, it'll be interesting to see if he, like you said, puts his money where My his fingers mouth are crossed. Is, right? Uh, just curious, Danielle, what do you think is the number one takeaway from the book? I think that the number one takeaway should be that we have not always been a nation that has lived beyond its means. We used to be a nation that saved and invested. We used to, a 20% down payment it used to be a normal way to buy a home. You didn't used to buy more car than you could afford. 
with a lease or with by using an 84-month loan. As a corporation, you didn't used to borrow more than as a, as a country. Look at what's happening with, with the debt clock. We're almost at $20 trillion. And again, all of this can be glossed over with low interest rates. So do you think we can make a dent in this debt, this <laughs> outrageous we can, we, debt? We can only hope, but because everything we're seeing, again, from the new administration, looks that we're going to go in the opposite direction. Right. If he wants to push through some of these things to spur economic growth, you're going to be adding debt to the nation's balance sheet. Right. And again, that's going to force him to make difficult choices because he's going to want to keep these interest rates low. Would you want to be in his shoes? I wouldn't want to be in his shoes, no, but I'd certainly be happy to advise him. <laughs> <laughs> Good to know. Uh, well, the book is terrific. And like you said, it's an insider's take, and it's the first in a very long time. There's a lot to be learned. And I promise it's written in English. It is. It is. I read it myself, and I don't come from a finance background. So um, it's, it's very user-friendly, and it's something that everybody should read. Uh, just every American should understand this stuff because yes, it's absolutely. our country. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. If you'd like more information on the book, just check out our website. It's csweetbookclub.com. That's c-sweetbookclub.com. I'm Taryn Winterbrill. We'll see you next time right here on Bestseller TV. Like Thanks for what you just heard, visit c-sweetradio.com. C-Sweet Radio, turning the volume up on business. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-sweetradio.com. <laughs>